Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. afternoon or good night however and whenever it is you may be listening thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of the take it easy podcast live on the believe podcast network except it isn't live because it's a podcast. Welcome in, everybody. It is Tuesday, September 14th, according to my count. It might not be when you're listening to this podcast, but we have a wonderful show to get to today. Me and the boys over at the Slump Buster have been putting out content for a couple months now. I am uh, the unofficial title of NBA correspondent over there, but we did put out a USC video and talked about the NFL opening week. So I wanted to uh, let the slump buster take over a little bit here on the take it easy podcast. Cause they're doing really fun work and growing on YouTube. I know they just had their most viral video ever after the uh, horns down Texas Longhorns of Juju's favorite college took an L against Arkansas and that video went viral. So shout out to them. We'll get to that in a little bit coming up on the show. But we've got two stories to talk about first. So an unofficial A block and an unofficial B block. How about that? We don't usually get both of those. But uh, we were just going to have an A block. And then Raiders and Ravens happened last night. And oh my lord, <laughs> that was the most stupid fun game on Monday night I have seen since the Saints beat the Texans on a crazy 30-second drive and Will Lutz field goal back in week one four years ago that was just crazy stupid fun between the Baltimore Ravens and the Las Vegas Raiders and the takeaway we have from this game is that you know the Raiders are not that good this is one of those weird lose to football games and this seems to happen to the Raiders all the time this was the meme that went viral over on CSM which you can check out uh, with the link in the bio here but what happened was the Raiders have these loop these wins because football all the time. A few years ago when they were tanking or trying to tank, they beat the Pittsburgh Steelers who were like 7-4 and 1 at the time and then ended up I think making the playoffs and then losing to Jacksonville that year. This might have been the year after Jacksonville actually. So they did something in, oh, no, they missed the playoffs that year because they fell apart at the end. Part of that being that they lost to the Raiders at home, who were like 2-10 and 10 at the time. And then that loss might have ended up costing them like Nick Bosa <laughs> or Kyler Murray because, I'm sorry, that win cost the Raiders Kyler Murray or Nick Bosa and ended up having them draft Cleveland Furl by virtue of beating the Steelers. Then last year on an early season Monday Night Football the Raiders beat the Saints. They were 2-0, and and we all looked up and said, oh, the Raiders are looking like a bit of a playoff team, and then it all fell apart for the Raiders, and they finished 7-9. and So the Raiders 
have been here before. And by the way, to add to the list, they also, you know, beat the Kansas City Chiefs last year, which is stupid good. But uh, anyways, the Raiders end up winning in a ridiculously fun fashion where literally I'm watching the end of this game and it's like every single thing that happened in succession topped the ridiculousness of the thing before it. It like it's like I can't believe that happened 10 times over and somehow each one escalated even more than the other. Like you couldn't even write a script about just how crazy that was. Before we go down this rabbit hole, I do want to share one crazy stat though, which is that Derek Carr now becomes the second quarterback in the NFL to beat both Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. The only person besides Derek Carr is Ryan Tannehill, which is just ridiculous Um, that Derek Carr and Ryan Tannehill are the only quarterbacks that have somehow managed to beat Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. But if you really think about it, they might be the the fourth and fifth best quarterbacks in the AFC if you put Deshaun Watson in there. With Lamar and Mahomes, I think Carr and Tannehill might be next up. Well, Josh Allen, actually. So fifth and sixth would be Carr and Tannehill if you're trying to figure out how that works out. But I thought I found that to be absolutely ridiculous that Tannehill and Derek Carr are the only quarterbacks to beat both Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, anyways, so... Let's talk more about the game where there was like 10 escalating ridiculous things. And this starts out with Lamar Jackson fumbling the football, letting the Raiders come back and tie the game at 17-17. Like Lamar just gets poked. Um, Good job by using your peanut Tillmans to punch the ball out. He lands on his head. It's a really funky looking tackle. And so Lamar Jackson fumbles in a cartoonish way. And the Raiders get a comeback touchdown at 17-17. And then the Ravens score a touchdown. And then the Raiders score a touchdown. And then Baltimore gets the ball uh, with about two minutes to go in the game. And out of the two-minute warning on third down, Lamar Jackson cuts through the defense. Not a single player is covering Lamar Jackson's weak side zone which or like a weak side QB spy which is a terrible decision not that anyone could catch Lamar Jackson I saw him like juke like I think this is a true stat he juked 7,000 defenders on the Raiders in that game yesterday so not that it would have mattered that much but they put no QB spy on Derek on uh, Lamar Jackson and Lamar Jackson picks up 35 yards and Baltimore is right in field goal range but then they can't pick up a first down to ice the game. So the Raiders have no timeouts. 40 seconds left. Justin Tucker bangs home a field goal because, of course, always pick Justin Tucker on your fantasy team for your kicker. Um, I've been doing it for years now. Always just draft Justin Tucker. He might miss some, but you always want to get Justin Tucker on your team. So Tucker bangs home a kick, and... Baltimore is up three with 40 seconds left, and they flash a stat across the screen that I makes sense, but I hadn't realized before, which is that after Matthew Stafford, Derek Carr has the second most comebacks in the NFL since 2014, which is a little misleading because Carr and Stafford are the ones who have played like every game 
since 2014. The only other one is like Matt Ryan and, you know. So there aren't too many options for that oddly specific stat, but it makes sense that the teams with terrible players around them have to lead these miracle comebacks all the time uh, before you get mad about comparing to the Raiders to the Lions. The Lions have more playoff appearances in the last decade than the Raiders. So, yeah, Derek Carr has 24 comebacks and Matthew Stafford is 26. And I've always joked Matthew Stafford has the most comebacks in the history of the NFL. And it's because his teams always suck. But I guess Derek Carr is in the same camp of being a good quarterback on shit teams. And we were joking yesterday on DSD about how Derek Carr is the definition of an average quarterback at this point. But shout out to Derek Carr. Completed a huge pass to Brian Edwards. Completed a play to Waller. They spiked the ball. Completed a third pass in a row because these guys are just ridiculously accurate and never throw interceptions. Hence the crazy stat that 48% of all interceptions in the NFL right now are by either, well, Derek Carr threw one on Monday, but going into Monday, 48% of all interceptions were thrown by either Trevor Lawrence, Tom Brady, or Aaron Rodgers. These quarterbacks are ridiculously accurate, and Derek Carr goes 3-for-3, three three, gets him in field goal range, Daniel Carlson bangs home the game-tying field goal, and now we're going to overtime in a game that we thought was over, but the Raver, the Ravens couldn't pick up a first down with like rushing five yards, which they just rushed 35 yards and rushed for 200 in the game. So we go to overtime, and the Raiders get the ball first, and the Raiders score the game-winning touchdown to Brian Edwards, and they go to replay review and call him down at the one-yard line. But the thing is, they call the touchdown on the field. All the Raiders come out to celebrate. Lamar Jackson is dapping up the Raiders' sideline after the touchdown, and they're like, nope, hang on. And then John Gruden gets told, eh, this one's coming back. So now they get the ball at the half-yard line after they've just celebrated the game-winning touchdown in overtime. Remember, you have to score a touchdown to win the game at this point because the Ravens haven't had the ball yet. The Raiders don't get it on the first play. And then false start on second down with Alex Leatherwood, the first-round pick that was probably a mistake for them considering Christian Derrissaw was still available. And he was like a third-round grade or something like that. So Leatherwood false starts, and this is like his third false start of the game. He's going to be high in the league in penalties this year, I have a feeling. But now they have to move back to the 5.5 when they thought they were just going to get to pound the ball in for the win. Then on third down at the five and a half, Derek Carr throws a pass that ricochets off the Ravens' helmet, the Ravens' defender's helmet, and gets intercepted. Which maybe you've watched the game, but I'm sure with all the ridiculousness, you forgot about Leatherwood false starting and forgot about the interception that literally hit a dude's helmet in the end zone and got Baltimore the ball back. Because it just keeps escalating ridiculousness during this game. So everything we're seeing is crazy from Lamar fumbling to the Raiders coming back to score to Baltimore scoring to the Raiders scoring to Baltimore kicking a field goal off a 35-yard play that was just a terrible defensive play call by Gus Bradley to 30-second comeback drive for the Raiders to Raiders kicking a field goal to Raiders now scoring the game-winning touchdown but having it get called back 
on replay. So they've just celebrated to false start to now Raiders turn the ball over. Now Baltimore is going to go win the game. And Lamar Jackson fumbles again. And I made the, the joke about him becoming Daniel Jones, but Lamar Jackson never fumbles the ball like that. And Max with two X's, Crosby, and Carl Nazib, and uh, Yannick Ngakwe were the MVPs on that pass rush for the Raiders, but still, it was not a great situation for Baltimore to be in, considering they were picking apart the shitty Raiders defense. And it just didn't matter because they couldn't stop the pass rush. They really missed Orlando Brown in that game. Even with Ronnie Stanley coming back, they missed Orlando Brown on that right tackle. So, anyways, Lamar Jackson fumbles the ball again. It's recovered by the Raiders. And that's still not even the craziest thing that happened. Because we're going to keep escalating some more. Because now, the Raiders get the ball in the field goal range. On second down, they get confused have the offense out, but then want to go kick a field goal on second and nine. They get a delay of game five yards. So now they want to bring the offense back on the field. And this is not a short kick either. This is like a 48-yard kick or something like that. And then they get the delay of game. So now it's a 50-plus yard kick. Now they bring the offense on the field. A special teams coach is going to get an earful after that. And on the last play of the game, the Ravens think they're just going to run it But Derek Carr drops back, fires a ball over the top to Zay Jones because no one on the Baltimore defense is playing in the secondary. They thought they were just going to run the ball again. So Zay Jones gets like 10 yards behind the Baltimore defender and all Derek Carr just has to do is throw it up and now the Raiders are going to win the game. Oh no, Baltimore is just head head in their hands Because, yeah, you thought you were going to lose the game, but to lose the game like that is brutal. And it came right after the stupid craziness of we're going to put the kicking team on the field. No, we're going to play on offense on second and 10 from our 29-yard line. No, we want to kick the 48-yard field goal now. Oh, no, we just took a delay of game because we don't have timeouts. Okay, now we're way out of field goal range. What are we going to do? We're going to throw it. And what are we going to do after we just threw it last time and Derek Carr threw an interception? We're just going to throw a heave in the air and the Ravens defense is going to just say, nah, screw it. And the Raiders win because football. That's just a because football win if I've ever seen it. It was stupid crazy. It was stupid fun. It was stupid random. And the Raiders get to beat the Baltimore Ravens in a coin flip victory. It's going to help them down the road if they're trying to fight for the wild card. And Baltimore can't have too many of these losses on their schedule and still win the AFC North. But at least Cleveland also lost on Sunday. And uh, shout out to the first place Cincinnati Bengals in the AFC North at this point. And the 4-0 AFC West, 4-0 NFC West, 0-4 NFC North, and 1-3 AFC South because football. This is just a toss-up game. Like People were like, what's the problem with the Ravens this year? That's just a coin flip game that happened to not go to the Ravens because of just ridiculous craziness and fun that we got to have altogether on Monday Night Football, unless you were on the East Coast. That was probably a painful watch all the way up to midnight. But still, it was a lot of fun to see 
30,000 Raiders fans and 30,000 Baltimore fans packed into a magical stadium in Las Vegas that is really, really black. Everything about the stadium is just pitch black dark. All right, we got a B-Block story as well today. Let's talk about USC football, which... You know, it's not memes of the weekend anymore, which seems to be the only time I talk about the Pac-12, but USC finally fired Clay Helton. Took them a while. He was kind of entering that Gus Malzahn territory of guy who always does just enough to keep his job. Les Miles used to be in that category too. Um, Malzahn was doing it for years. Malzahn would always like be on the hot seat and then have a great season and get a contract extension. And then Auburn just kind of got tired of his shit. And so they finally fired him. I think that kind of happened to Clay Helton because after the 2018 season, everyone assumed Helton was going to get fired. And then the adjustment they made was bringing in Cliff Kingsbury to run the offense and bring air raid to the Pac-12 and then Cliff Kingsbury left USC as offensive coordinator after like two weeks to go coach the Arizona Cardinals and get Kyler Murray, which by the way, give Cliff Kingsbury like 13 more weeks and he'll probably get fired and end up back at USC. So maybe that's a full cycle thing for the Trojans. But in all seriousness, USC kind of, well, actually there's nothing serious about this story. I, I just lied to you right now because all of it is funny. Um, but USC fires Helton. About three years later than we kind of thought it would be. And then they also made a pretty decisive decision to fire him when they did. Because Clay Helton getting fired in week two, or any major coach getting fired in week two, was something that I wasn't anticipating. Because you're basically at that point just punting on the season. Yeah, you might have time to evaluate the guy who's replacing him for an entire season. But at that point, the guy's just the coach. It's not like an interim coach for like two games or a bowl game when you know for example Matt Wells leaves Utah State to go coach Texas Tech and they have to have like graduate assistants as position coaches and the defensive line coach as uh, the head coach because everyone else was an assistant and left with him to go to Texas Tech so yeah it's not like that situation where everyone gets fired but this coach is basically the coach for the whole season now even if he's an interim and so USC kind of made the weird move of firing early and I think part of it was that they the loss to Stanford kind of knocked them out of Pac-12 championship contention cuz it kind of just leaves them hanging around the the middle group of the Pac-12 South and you never want to be in the middle group of the Pac-12 South cuz the Pac-12 South is already one of those conferences that just beats each other up all the time like uh I think they had six different champions in six years, if I remember correctly. So that's a fun little nugget around the Pac-12 South, similar to the ACC Coastal, who had six different champions or seven different champions in seven years. I think the Pac-12 South had like five and six or six and seven, something like that. Um, and USC had a repeat in there somewhere. But USC is now kind of that middling team where UCLA better than we thought they would be we kind of thought UCLA would be on the come up with that middling team Utah maybe not as good as we thought about but Utah's always somewhere in the top three they make bowl games every year Arizona State they're ranked in the top 25 right now Arizona they're shit Colorado they're shit 
but they're also Colorado, which means they could magically make a run to win the Pac-12 South because Colorado finishes fifth or sixth every year, except every like five years. They just have a magical season where they finish first place. Then they finish last again, fire the coach or the coach that they just hired leaves Colorado to go to Michigan State or whatever weird situation they have. I have no idea who the coach is at Colorado anymore. Doesn't really matter anyways, but Colorado is usually terrible. We know Arizona is shit, and USC is kind of looking around at the landscape like, where are we as a program? 0-1 in conference play against Stanford. We're victims of the Pac-12 beating each other up just as much as the next team, but we've also made a Rose Bowl in the last three years. So what do we want to be as a program, and where are we as a program are questions that USC is asking themselves at this point. And... Maybe they'll still be spoilers for one of these teams. Like, I imagine, I was looking at UCLA's schedule because I was uh, going back and forth with someone who who's avidly a UCLA fan, and I, I'm thinking, like, you just, you want to make the Alamo Bowl or the Holiday Bowl. That's a victory for UCLA this year, and UCLA's schedule is just a traditional Pac-12 slate, and I'm like, Cal's got an upset in them somewhere. Stanford just got their upset. They might make a bowl game by having one more upset, but Stanford was originally like a four-win team this year. So they've got an upset in their back pocket. I know Washington's program got derailed by Montana, who they paid $675,000 to come beat them. But Washington's got an upset in them somewhere. Maybe it's against Oregon. Maybe that'll bail out UCLA or Utah or whoever ends up winning the Pac-12. So, yeah, you got Washington's got one in them. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking down the schedule, too. Uh, Colorado's always got one in them. Colorado's going to pull an upset against someone. Arizona, I don't think, has an upset. I think they're going to go winless this year. But Arizona State could pull an upset on someone. Uh, the Pac-12 is just kind of existing right now to have someone pull those upsets. I think USC's probably in that category. They got one weird upset in them somewhere. Maybe it's to Oregon, maybe it's to UCLA, maybe it's Utah, but but USC's still got one magical upset in them. And if you listen to the podcast we did on Sunday, which was Wired Up, we talked about how Mario Cristobal has done regional recruiting around everything west of the Colorado in college football, where the five-star recruits are always going to get picked up by Alabama or... Clemson or Ohio State or Georgia because they're willing to invest the resources in those five stars. But a lot of the three and four star recruits on the West Coast aren't as heavily recruited by the major programs. Some are, but most aren't because it just costs a lot of resources. And would you rather recruit someone who's a four star from California or someone who's a four star from Ohio if you're Michigan, Ohio State? or any of those Big Ten schools. Or if you're an ACC school, how about a guy from Florida versus a guy from California? Well, you can recruit both if you view them the same way, but if you only have a finite amount of resources, you're going to pick the one closer than you are the one further away, unless you think you have a better chance of landing the further away guy. That might change the math. But if both are viewed equally then you're not going to recruit the West Coast as much. And so a lot of these three-and-a-half and, and four-star guys do fall through the cracks. 
And I think a lot of the time USC was getting them in the past, like Sam Darnold um, coming into USC. JT Daniels was the top recruit. He went to USC. Um, you Oregon didn't really get top recruits except on defense and obviously Penny Sewell, who happened to be from the American Samoa. But I think in, in past years, Penny Sewell might have chosen USC. And now he chooses Oregon with Mario Cristobal, who's made an effort to recruit all of these West Coast dudes. And so at the rise of Oregon, USC becomes the fall guy because a lot of the recruits USC might have gotten by default by being the best team on the West Coast are going to Oregon and for a little bit going to Washington. But Washington now has a a coaching change um, and it's not going too great in the retool for Washington. So now they just get to be another one of those regular teams in the Pac-12 who beat each other up all the time. But still, as Oregon gets these recruits that traditionally by default would go to USC, USC looks around and says, what is our counterpunch? And they decided that Clay Helton wasn't worth it for the next three years. Because this is the thing with firing a coach in the transfer portal era of college football. All the players on your team can transfer with a one-time freebie. And this is happening a lot. And it's why when Texas loses this weekend to Arkansas, or when Vanderbilt loses to East Tennessee State, or when Kansas storms the field because they beat South Dakota by three points a six and ten fcs team or florida well florida state's different but last year florida state had the exception this year when they lose to jacksonville state it means mike norville needs to go six and four over the rest of the season to have the same record as willie taggart who got fired after two seasons at florida state so these coaches that are at new programs arizona's another case I, i mentioned how shit they were arizona was shit last year they fired kevin sumlin They hired the quarterback's coach for the Patriots, I think. I don't know his name. I think it's like Jeff, maybe. But Arizona was terrible last year, and then all the terrible players transferred. So you don't even have the terrible players anymore. Because of the one-time transfer rule, it's easy to transfer. And this is a good thing, by the way. I know that this traditionally comes along with the taglines about these players are transferring away from the coach, but... This is a good thing. Like players being allowed to go to different situations because a coach has been fired is a good thing. It just means that these programs have one-year buffers where they really, really suck. Same thing happened to Illinois. They lost to an FCS team after they beat Nebraska. The problem is just Nebraska is shit. And they lost to Illinois in that first game. But Illinois really sucks. They were projected to be the worst team in the Big Ten West because they were terrible last year, fired their coach, And then all the terrible players that coach recruited ended up transferring to other places. So you don't even have those players anymore. So there's a buffer zone where when you fire a coach now, it's a two-year process to get back. And USC delayed that process a good bit until they looked up and said, okay, we're no longer an elite program. So who are we now? What is the next step? It's going to be a process. This year is going to be a lost cause for USC. Some players can still transfer or take redshirt years, which is totally possible to save your eligibility, which might happen for USC, which now that I think about it could explain part of the reason why Helton got fired. But still, this year's a bit of a lost cause for USC. Next year is going to be a lost cause for USC because then players playing this year 
can transfer in the offseason. So it's going to be a two-year turnaround process for USC. I don't know if they'll bottom out because they always get the three- and four-star recruits that maybe Colorado isn't getting because Colorado, when they stink at football, they really stink at football. And they've been bad for like a decade except for those like three magical seasons every like four or five years where they win the Pac-12 South because the Pac-12 South is just utter chaos. But still, it's going to be a process for USC. If they finish fourth in the Pac-12 this year, they finish fourth next year, maybe they won't make a bowl game one of these years. It's going to happen, but the same thing happened to UCLA, and they had to turn it around with a strong recruiting class. I think two years ago, UCLA had the youngest team in the country, and now all those players are juniors and seniors. They've got a pretty good team. And then you've got uh, Oregon went 4-8 and eight with Mark Helfrich. Then Willie Taggart went 6-6. Six and six. Or, I'm sorry, Willie Taggart went 5-7, and seven, I think. Willie Taggart missed a bowl game at Oregon. So Oregon went two years without making a bowl game. And then Cristobal started recruiting regionally again. And all of a sudden, they built this powerhouse program that takes down Ohio State as, like, the peak victory for Oregon. And maybe not a powerhouse is the right word. Like, a second or third tier top team in the big in the Pac, out of the Pac-12. Like, win the Rose Bowl in 2019 play the Fiesta Bowl last year, maybe try and make the college football playoff this year by everyone else flopping, but still it's been a regional powerhouse for Oregon, but it took them years to get there. That process now starts for USC by doing the hard move of firing the average coach who you didn't want running the program anymore. Also, make Bill O'Brien the next coach at USC. I just want to see that happen for memes and lulls. All right, let's talk with our boy Juju Talk Sports over on the Slump Buster. Make sure to follow that YouTube and follow that Instagram. I run that Instagram page a bit too, so if you want to see some other memes that are like formatted <laughs> to see what which ones go really viral, um, check out that on Twitter and Instagram as well. So let's roll along with the Slump Busters. game let's start getting into this pros uh this episode obviously i mentioned kickoffs just here in a couple days so we got to put on the record these predictions we got to put out who we think is going to be taking down some hardware at the end of the year both individual honors and of course team honors then we're going to look at nfl week one but starting off first here kyle so i'm going to read off the top five for the coach of the year honors so vegas has it lined up as such favorite right now is going to be first year head coach brandon staley of the Chargers, sitting at plus 1200 right behind him perhaps the greatest coach of all time bill balachek at plus 1400 been quite a while since bill has even been in this conversation kyle shanahan at plus 1400 with the niners trying to rebound off a rough 2020 uh sean mcveigh at plus 1600 and then kevin stefanski tied with him at plus 1600 so right out the gate i'm going to eliminate kevin stefanski because we generally don't see repeat coach of the years usually this award does go to a first year coach on a team that was out of the playoff mix and then gets back to the said playoffs. And that's why Vegas, of course, has Brandon Staley listed as a favorite. Uh, do you agree with kind of how Vegas has it and who is your personal favorite? 
Coach of the Year is always strange because it's usually an award that we give to teams that succeed but don't necessarily have a star type of player. Unless there's that one year like where Baltimore was like 14 and 2 and they schemed around Lamar Jackson and they gave it to John Harbaugh. Like one of those that like jumps off the page. But a lot of the times we do give it to the team that makes an improvement but didn't change up the roster as much. And when I think about that this year, Staley comes to mind but Staley feels like recency bias because last year we gave it to a first year coach uh, in Kevin Stefanski and then a few years ago it was Sean McVay and I think Matt Nagy even won one which was really weird because he's been a really bad coach ever since (laughs) winning coach of the year. I think again that was just a first timer first year head coach uh, coming off the John Fox era in Chicago. Yeah. And the Bears won the division that year, which I think had more to do with Khalil Mack and Eddie Jackson than anything else. So Staley, I think, is that conventional pick. I wouldn't feel comfortable betting on any coach of the year type candidate, but I think one that personally I don't think will win it, but one that would be a candidate of sorts if their team does well is Sean Payton and the New Orleans Saints because people don't view Jameis Winston in the sense of a quarterback that can transcend a team, even though I think he's better than last year's Drew Brees or whatever mutated version of 12 broken ribs and torn knees and torn ankles that Drew Brees had at the end of last year. And and yes, the Saints lost some talent on defense, but they still have a ridiculously talented secondary, replaced Trey Hendrickson with Marcus Davenport. And he seems like one of those cases where if the Saints win 11, 12 games next year, people will point to him and say, look at the coaching job Sean Payton is doing with less talent than he's had over the last few years. Okay, so my obvious pick here has to be Dan Campbell, of course. You know, the man's eating kneecaps. He's bringing Lions camp. He's ready to go. But uh, my serious pick, my non-mean pick, is going to be Kyle Shanahan. Call it a bias, but I I think that the voters kind of did him wrong a couple years ago during that year with John Harbaugh getting the Coach of the Year honors. Um, When you look at what the Niners' preseason expectations were, a lot of people had them about an eight-win, nine-win team. And then obviously they ended up becoming a Super Bowl team that year. That's why I think that this is going to be a big year for Kyle to really establish who he is in terms of NFL coaches. Coming off last year where the Niners were outside the playoffs, I think as the uh, number three favorite according to Vegas, I think Kyle has that opportunity to actually take home hardware this year. You know, I don't hate that. And I'm probably the pouring water on the fire with the 49ers guy because I had said prior to last year that even if they had been healthy, they probably wouldn't have made it out of the wild card because of just the talent decline that they had on the team. But I will say that that is a fine pick because if the 49ers do really well this year, there's no reason they can't win the NFC West. I struggle give Bill uh, credit within these coach of the year honors because I feel Bill falls victim to his own legacy in terms of being a coach. Like he doesn't need to win coach of the year honors anymore at this point. His legacy is already established. So I kind of discount him in that rankings as well. But uh, Kyle Shanahan for me, I'm sorry, one more time, Kyle, your pick. My official pick will be... Uh, that's a good one because I was just kind of doing analysis there. You know what? I will go Sean McDermott with Buffalo. That's my pick. Okay. Yeah. Sean McDermott, he was just outside the top five. I want to say somewhere around plus 1800 as well. A little bit tougher just because this, his team doesn't have as much of a road to climb being that they were in the AFC championship game. But if the voters want to give him some credit as of what he's done for the Buffalo Bills organization as a whole, 
I, I would agree. Sean McDermott does deserve some praise as well. Okay, let's take a look at Comeback Player of the Year. It's not yet named the Alex Smith Trophy, but at this current point, it is the leading favorite is Dak Prescott at plus 180. Vegas has really said this is going to be Dak Prescott's award this year. Behind him, you got Joe Burrow at plus 550. Saquon Barkley at plus 600, Christian McCaffrey at plus 700, and then Nick Bosa at plus 800. I I think that this is pretty much a unanimous Dak Prescott's going to win this. The quarterbacks always have the advantage when it comes to these type of awards. And if Dak Prescott is on that field, puts up his typical season, he's just a lock pretty much for this award in my mind. First of all, I would like to say, actually, that the Comeback Player of the Year award has just become a scam over the last few years because they did give Alex Smith the award last year, even though Alex Smith was, and we took a lot of flack for this towards the end of the season, the worst quarterback in the NFL last year. Just genuinely horrible last season. But because it was a cool story, he got to be Comeback Player of the Year. And then the year before, they gave it to Ryan Tannehill because Ryan Tannehill apparently came back from the Dolphins franchise. No injury. No, nothing. He just came back from playing on the Dolphins, which, okay, if you want to do it that way, I think that's a way to scam some people out of their money. Can we name Sam Darnold then? Can we put him as the escaping Adam Gase comeback player of the year? (laughs) Yeah, I I think Sam Darnold should be eligible in that case. And if Sam Darnold wins it over Christian McCaffrey, we're going to have a problem here. But in all seriousness, yeah, it's probably either going to be Dak Prescott or Joe Burrow. Unless Carson Wentz does something magical, I think he's another contender type player. I know he was combined injured and bad last year for the Eagles, but that's one that I think of as maybe a comeback type of player if the Colts win the division or the Colts win 11 games or something like that. But like you said, it's probably going to be Dak Prescott. If not Dak, probably Joe Burrow. Saquon was interesting because I forgot about him. And I've said previously that I think the Giants will be better just by default of adding so much talent on offense, whether it be him or Galladay or Kadarius Tony, as compared to having like the corpse of Golden Tate running around last year. Saquon's an interesting one for me where I look at it like wouldn't be surprised if he wins it, but he'd have to do something pretty special to win it. Like I said, most of these awards are based off the narrative and quarterbacks certainly do have the advantage as the leading headline getters on any team. I will throw out a potential option. I mean, I know this will never happen, but the Chiefs offensive lineman last year that sat out due to the COVID pandemic and helped out with, I know he's a registered doctor or nurse or something along those lines. What's his name? Duvernay, I want to say. Duvernay Tardif is the uh, guard for the Chiefs. I would put him as an honorary mention just in this category because obviously the pandemic hit us hard last year. He's out there like sacrificing one of his prime NFL years to go help out. Shout out to him. I just you know, thought I'd mention that as a nice little nugget here on the end. Okay, let's take a look at the rookie class. So let's start getting these rookie awards. Defensive rookie of the year. Right now, the favorite, another cowboy, is going to be Micah Parsons at plus 450. Jalen Phillips, uh, plus 800. Miami Dolphins right there. Jamin Davis, plus 900. Quiddy Payne, plus 1,000. And then Patrick Sertain at the second at plus 1,000. I'm going to say Sertain. I write him off a little bit because I think it's harder for cornerbacks to really stand out in terms of these awards. Unless you really come down with five picks, six picks, a bunch of pick sixes, there's not a lot of love you can really get from that position. And once NFL defenses figure out they can stay away from you, 
you can't really stat pad. So cornerbacks, I think, instantly take a hit. I think they have it right here as well. Micah Parsons, just because he's going to be so involved in everything the Cowboys do. He's one of those prototypical linebackers, sideline to sideline, very athletic, very involved in passing situations. They're going to get him involved in pass rush. So he's going to get some big splash plays. And I think that that's going to be what the voters are really going to appeal to. Yeah, this is a tough year for defense because of there's just not a lot of big defensive prospects that jumped off the page. I think like the top seven picks in the draft were all offensive players before J.C. Horn, who surprisingly was not on the list. I was interested by that. There's no like Chase Young that jumps off the screen like last year. I will throw out another name that could be interesting down the line, which is Asante Samuel Jr. for the Chargers. He's going to get a chance to play a lot of snaps. Maybe a lot of snaps replicates to uh, some kind of consideration for the award. I know that helped Jeremy Chin last year for the Carolina Panthers, who I think finished second for the award. Don't quote me on it, but I think he finished behind Chase Young, who won it almost unanimously. So he was, uh, I think, the 64th pick in the draft. So there's a chance that these lower level guys get the award, but traditionally it is the people at the top of the draft. They get to play the most snaps, their first round picks. I will be conventional on this one and pick Micah Parsons. That will be be very involved. Yeah. Um, Okay. Offensive rookie of the year. just led by a lot of quarterbacks and pretty much the last few years it's been quarterback running back trevor lawrence plus 260 justin fields plus 550 trey lance at plus 650 zach wilson plus 750 and then Najee harris at plus 800 i'm actually surprised with this top five that after mac jones was announced as the week one starter following the cam newton news that he didn't fly up the rankings as well, certainly ahead of Trey Lance, who at the moment, um, as an Irish fan, I'm expecting to sit at least multiple weeks, probably not even get in there. Realistically, even, I don't know, best case, worst case, week eight. So Mac Jones, I, I thought would get a little bit more love. I think my personal pick is going to be Najee Harris. I think that he has an opportunity and a lot of touches to shine in the Steelers offense. Even the Steelers declaring him as the number 22 overall pick is them saying they're going to get back to their old ways, uh, use their running backs in the same way they used to use uh, Le'Veon Bell back in the day, D'Angelo Williams, these traditional power running backs that they used to have. And Najee certainly is a great pick at that point. I can't argue that. I think I think the the simple answer for why is Najee Harris going to be good? The answer is just look at him. Just look at him. He's a gigantic human being that rivals Derrick Henry at the running back position. He's going to be great. There's no way he's not great. That dude is just ridiculous. Ridiculous. Great pass uh, catcher too, not just a running back. Like he is going to be involved on literally all three downs. Even Derrick Henry, for as great as he is, he's not nearly the pass catcher that Najee is. Yeah, I'm so mad. He was drafted one pick before me in the second round in fantasy football this year, which was unfortunate. But I love Justin Fields and I think Justin Fields is going to get in early enough and put up big numbers. The problem is just I don't think he's been given the proper support system to win enough games. And maybe that doesn't matter. Matter. Like Justin Herbert won it last year. Justin Jefferson probably should have been co-rookie of the year. And he had he was on a team that was like six and ten or seven and nine. But I love Justin Fields. But I mean, if I were a betting man, I wouldn't bet on it at this point, considering we don't know when he's going to come in during the season, which I guess maybe means this is the best value to play him for. I think again, I'm thinking conventionally Trevor Lawrence is going to put up big numbers. 
They've got three wide receivers on that team that are at least wide receiver twos. So maybe he falls in love with one of them and just starts going berserk during the season. But all of these guys are going to put up big numbers, or at least three of them are going to put up big numbers. And there's going to be a bit of a debate down the line for sure. My second pick, my second instinct actually here was Zach Wilson, oddly enough. And I question Zach Wilson's longtime upside. I'm not nearly as high on him three, four years down the road as Tony Romo, for example. But in year one, I could see him having a very Baker-esque type season. That's always a comp that's been thrown out there, him versus Baker. And I think it's because the offense that he plays in, that LaFleur, Shanahan, McVay type offense will give him some easy looks, scheme some guys open, and give him an opportunity to really stand out amongst the rookie class, use some of his best attributes. And the fact that he's going to be out there in week one, I think is going to be his advantage. Uh, Trevor Lawrence, like you mentioned, the prodigal son that he is, uh, will have every opportunity uh, to show why he's the number one overall pick being out there from the start. But I do look at some of the tape from the early preseason games, and it did make me question Jacksonville's ability to really keep him upright and on the field. At least with Zach Wilson, you could say the offensive line for the Jets should be good this year, should be very um, capable of keeping him on his feet, could potentially allow him to put up some decent numbers out there in New York. I don't know if that's going to give New Yorkers some false hope for the future, and that is something that always scares me, the thought of New Yorkers having some false hope. Yes, they tend to let the rest of the country know about it. Yeah, I've been making fun of Giants fans for about five or six years now for pretending that they have false hope. So I, I've been enjoying that revelation over the past few years. Jets, if you want some of it, you can get some too. But it's more so Giants fans that have done it to themselves over the past couple of years. But So, uh, so are you saying we're retiring the Vanilla Vic nickname? Uh, I mean, I'll give him a chance, not saying it's over, but I think the book is kind of out on what Daniel Jones is going to end up being giants fans. You did this to yourselves. You could have had Josh Allen in 2018, but you made the organization keep Eli Manning and fire Ben McAdoo. That's another story for another day. I was actually reading about Justin Herbert. Uh, Mina Kimes did a profile for ESPN on him. And one of the things that he talked about was during hard knocks 2020, he basically avoided the cameras as much as possible because he's really introverted and one of those like lead by working ridiculously hard guys, not a get in your face type of person. When his offensive linemen are on stage singing at a golf charity thing, he's like trying to fade off the stage and escape. And Zach Wilson reminds me of that because we're not hearing anything about Zach Wilson. And so that's why his name probably didn't come up in the conversations until you brought him up. And maybe that's a good thing because we honestly have no idea how good any of these quarterbacks are going to be. We have a feeling Trevor Lawrence is going to be good, but we don't have an exact idea of just how good these guys are going to be. Statistically, you would say that only about two of these guys are actually going to be successful based off past drafts. I mean, you look at the 2018 class, which is going to be the closest comp. Obviously, Rosen, done. Sam Darnold, clean on by the, you know, threads there. Baker, yeah, he, he is. we're kind Sam of Darnold still kind of in the middle there. Like we, we think he's a good enough, capable NFL starter. Uh, certainly, a lot of people are picking the Browns as one of their Super Bowl picks there, but I, I think there's still also a good chunk of us that haven't fully bought into the Baker Mayfield experience. Lamar, superstar, questionable in the playoffs. And then of course, Josh Allen also being talked about in that MVP vein. So at least two of those guys, Lamar and Josh Allen are killing it with at least one bona fide NFL starter in Baker. And then two guys that, uh, Five teams, four years for Josh Rosen. Uh, yeah. Who knows what's and next for Sam? You can go in. back to a year before that, too, in 2017, where you've got Mahomes and Watson, bona fide stars, Trubisky, NFL and quarterback. 
<laughs> yeah, fringe starter. He'll be a 12-year backup or something like that. Then you had Deshaun Kaiser, who's pretty much out of football now. So if you follow that math, there's probably two of them are going to be really good. Top eight quarterbacks. One or two are going to be above average. You're probably going to have a Jimmy Garoppolo in there somewhere. And then one of them is going to flame out spectacularly. And I'm not going to say it's Mac Jones, but that's kind of my pick at this point. So interesting. Well, I'm a we'll little see. higher on Mac just because of where he landed. I actually like that he landed in New England. I wouldn't have liked him at three personally, but I like what where he landed at 15. Obviously, it just really comes down to your situation where you landed. So, I mean, he does turn him into Jimmy Garoppolo. I think Bill Belichick will be very happy with that, considering yeah, he no, wanted Jimmy from the start. At pick 15 at the value they got him at, if he becomes a Derek Carr and starts 100 games for you, that's a huge victory for the New England Patriots, even if it's average, as long as you don't get into that QB purgatory situation where like you're keeping Andy Dalton or Jay Cutler like three years too long, then you're probably okay. But you'll worry about that five years down the road. At least you can get the quarterback in the door right now. And also, there's no reason all five can't be great this year. Also, sneaky pick, Jalen Waddell. If he's a true wide receiver one and the Dolphins have a top 10 offense, maybe Jalen Waddell sneaks into that conversation. Maybe. I think it's going to be harder for Waddle to really shine this year. Just they went out there and got Will Fuller and Devontae Parker. It's, you know, he still has that first round pedigree and at least the last couple years removed the bus status that was attached to his name. Let's talk about the NFL Defensive Player of the Year or basically the Aaron Donald Award. He is at plus 550 here. He's won three of the last four. Miles Garrett is actually tied with him in Vegas odds at plus 550 as well. TJ Watt trails them both at plus 800. Chase Young at plus 900. And then Nick Bosa, who was also a candidate for comeback player of the year, is sitting at plus 1400. Just a little bit above Joey, who was at plus 1600 there. It's hard to bet against Aaron Donald at this point. If he just does what he normally does, his consistent stat line, I think that the voters are almost obligated to side with him. I would like to see some new blood, personally. It would be kind of nice from a uh, fan perspective in here. And then the two picks that are behind him, Miles Garrett and TJ Watt, it's just really going to come down to can they get that 15 to 20 sack range? That's really what's going to be able to put them up for that award. What do you think? Uh, I'm leaning Garrett if someone's going to upset Donald. Aaron Donald's so good, man. But there, if there are two people who are right there it, it, in terms of talent level, like in, in terms of just you look at them and you just know that these guys are so much better than everyone else, it's going to be Miles Garrett and Chase Young. And I don't know if Chase Young's ready or like good enough to win the defensive player of the year if he's got enough clout going into year two. But those are the two that I think of. I, I was actually surprised that the Bosa's ended up there before Chase Young, considering that he's a trendy pick right now. No, Chase Young um, is ahead of them. Chase Young is plus 900 right now. Oh, okay. Bosa he is, is plus 1,400. And well, Bosa and Bosa plus 1,400, plus 1,600 with the younger brother, Nick, at plus 14. Okay, they were above then. Okay, so those are the two I think of. Usually they give it to secondary players whenever there is, there's like not a clear and obvious winner. Gilmore won it a couple of years ago because there wasn't anyone who was clear and obviously the defensive player of the year. But if you're looking for someone in the secondary to maybe compete there, I would throw out Marlon Humphrey, the corner for the Baltimore Ravens. Could be a threat to win defensive player of the year, get some clout in the defensive player of the year conversation but maybe won't win it 
because it's hard for secondary players to win it. But if you're looking for someone who's an unconventional pick, I I think Baltimore is going to be better at applying pressure with four this year. Obviously, they have this weird rotating door of Calais Campbell when healthy, and they had Yannick Ngakwe for a while, and now Judon is gone, and Derek Wolf is back. So I think they'll be better this year at applying pressure with four, even without Judon. And that should create more targets for Marlon Humphrey, which is more just a situation for Marlon Humphrey to get interceptions. And as simple as it seems, interceptions sometimes make the difference in deciding the gaudy stats for defensive player of the year. I know that helped Xavier Howard last year, having like 10 interceptions for the Dolphins. So Marlon Humphrey maybe is that new blood that you're hoping for. I'll throw out a dark horse as well. Um, His name has went quiet in the last couple of years, but our interpretation of what he was as a rookie was someone who should be competing for this award. If you're going to mention a secondary player, why not like a Derwin James? If this guy could just stay healthy, that hybrid type player that he was, he was involved in pass rush situations. Obviously he can pick a ball. He's good for hundred plus tackles every year. The fact that he could do a little bit of everything, I think should make him viable in this award conversation because uh, a similar comp to him is uh, Jamal Adams, but the general consensus is that he might be better in coverage than Jamal Adams is. Oh, at least if we're going to throw out dark horse potential names, if he could just stay healthy, Derwin James was in that conversation a couple years ago. Certainly people coming back in his second year thought he would be a candidate to potentially be in that award talk. Yeah. And one of my favorites is Darius Leonard as well, for similar reasons. Sometimes the award could be as simple as who's the best defensive player on the best defensive team. And both the Chargers and the Colts have a chance to potentially be the number one defense in the NFL this year if all goes well. So those are two names that I think of that way. The problem I have with Leonard is just that he's unvaccinated, so he might miss a couple games during the season, which is always a risky pick. But if the Colts do have the number one defense, then that ends up being a victory for Darius Leonard and finally establishing that he is the best middle linebacker in the NFL. No, no disrespect to Bobby Wagner or your boy Fred Warner, but Darius Leonard is a freak. If we're going to throw out a linebacker, I'm going to throw out one of the Tampa Bay guys, though. Uh, Devin White, I think, has an opportunity to as well. We might as well just go all three levels here, you know? Obviously, the defensive ends, the outside edge rushers are getting the most love in this because they have the best opportunity at splash plays. Derwin James, like you mentioned, Marlon Humphreys in the secondary, uh, Darius Leonard, Devin White. Um, Okay, well, let's look at the NFL Offensive Player of the Year. Uh, So this award is... At least I look at it this way. It's given to the best non-quarterback on offense because that's usually going to be your MVP. Uh, last year was obviously Derrick Henry because 2,000-yard rushing season, it's rare. It's something that doesn't happen that often. Uh, before that, I believe, was Christian McCaffrey with his crazy season that fantasy owners remember. Um, this year, currently, the uh, top five breaks down as such. Derrick Henry plus 900. Uh, Patrick Mahomes plus 1,000. Christian McCaffrey plus 1,200. Aaron Rodgers at plus four. 1400 and Dalvin Cook at plus 1800. I'm surprised they have Derrick Henry on here to repeat second year in a row because the uh, history of running backs have gone for 2000 yards. It isn't kind to them the next year afterwards. There is a notable drop off. And I know Derrick Henry is a physical freak. If you want any more proof of that, just look up his high school rushing numbers, but I don't see him repeating. Uh, Christian McCaffrey is a great person to mention here. Maybe wrong on this, may need to be fact-checked, but I don't believe a wide receiver has ever won this award, surprisingly enough. Michael Thomas in 2019, I believe, was the first. Yes. Okay. So only one in the history of this award. I wanted to be cute on it last year and say year of the tight end, but 
did not happen or it's come to fruition. It looks like Jerry Rice won it a couple times too, just looking it up real quick here. So it looks like Jerry Rice and Michael Thomas are the only wide receivers that have won the award, which I didn't know they were giving it all the way back then. But it's it just harder for a wide receiver to stand out. And this is the same discussion that went into the Heisman argument last year. Wide receivers just come off as more that ingredient in the soup rather than the soup itself. That's why I don't see any wide receivers really popping in terms of this award. If I had to choose a favorite, he's just a little bit down the list. I'm going to go with Alvin Kamara. I think Alvin Kamara, certainly in the first few weeks of this Saints season, is going to be the preferred passing option. And I could see him exceeding 100 receptions this year, which would put him on pace for that 1,000-1,000 mark that elevated guys like David Johnson, elevated guys like Christian McCaffrey in the past when it came to consideration for this award. Yeah, give me the Saints running back, Alvin Kamara. The Derrick Henry thing is difficult, and I'm hoping for the best because I picked him in fantasy football this year, but I have no reason to believe Derrick Henry can't go for 2,000 yards again. It's just so difficult for guys to go for 2,000 yards again. And you mentioned it with the wide receivers. Like, you have to be Michael Thomas, who breaks the all-time receptions record, or you have to be like Calvin Johnson, who broke the receiving yards record for a single season. Problem for him was that he just happened to do it in the exact same season that Peyton Manning threw for like 55 touchdowns. So he ended up just being in a year where there was awesome play. It was either that or the Adrian Peterson 2000 yard season. So one of those two ended up derailing Calvin Johnson, but I'm going to throw out a different name that is cheating the award title a bit, but I'm going to go with Lamar Jackson. And it's just because Lamar Jackson puts up such weird offensive numbers that unless he has a crazy season like he did in 2019, it's going to be tough for him to win MVP, although I'd like to pick him to win MVP. I want to, but I can't because I know how difficult it is when your team is not the best player on the best team. But I think Lamar Jackson is going to rush for a thousand yards going to maybe throw for 30 touchdowns. And if he finishes somewhere near the top of the MVP, maybe he gets the offensive player of the year award for the dual efforts of passing and rushing the ball. If it's close, then I could see them going with a second quarterback for the offensive player of the year and Louv giving them the MVP. I, I could see someone like that popping up. Even another potential name I'll throw out there in that same vein, like a Kyler Murray, someone who does a lot of things similar, because a lot of people were expecting Kyler Murray to maybe take that MVP type step like Lamar, like Josh Allen, third year for them. So you know, he has an opportunity to put up some big time numbers that could potentially put him in that conversation as well. Okay, well, let's talk about the Big guy then. NFL MVP. The favorite going in is going to be Patrick Mahomes at plus 600. Aaron Rodgers sitting behind him at plus 1100 to repeat. Josh Allen plus 1400. Tom Brady plus 1400. And Dak Prescott at plus 1600. So that's your top five. Uh, my personal favorite in this mix. You know, I think everyone just likes a good story. And I feel as though NFL voters, as we potentially look at the swan song, I'm going to go with Tom Brady. I'm going to say with the fact that they're returning all 11 starters on that Bucks offense, another year with that system and Brady relentlessness in pursuit of greatness. I think I'm going to put him is going to put him back in that MVP conversation. The numbers just might be there, which is scary for me to think, given that he's 44 years old, but he's going to have to hit a certain threshold of numbers to be able to get it. Like last year, he was 
all right. He was like quarterback 11 last year in like yards completion percentage. He was in the around the halfway point. So he was just almost there last year. I think the numbers just might be there this year for Tom Brady to to have the case. I just won't be the one to pick it because I am a Mahomey through and through. Mahomes is definitely my pick because how can you bet against him in any season? But I want to show some love to someone who's probably just barely creaking the top 10 of this list, which is Russell Wilson. Because Russell Wilson has always been a Hall of Fame type of quarterback and he gets poop all the time for not having an MVP first place vote, which is not fair to Russell Wilson at all like he's been so great over the past few years of his career I don't think he's gonna win what's he gonna do you know it just every year just there's just someone that's better it just how it happens man because yeah. I agree with you yeah Russell Wilson last year he started off ball of fire everyone is fully expecting it and then just the consistency of Rogers over time and Russ fell off it seems to happen every year so I agree with you that it's a crazy that he hasn't gotten a vote but I understand like every year there's just always someone it's like Drew Brees Drew Brees has retired gone no MVP consideration even in his best year the 5,000 yard passing year where he broke Dan Moreno's record yeah I, I love uh, I think it was Gridiron Heights made the joke about that where they had matching sweaters with Russell Wilson and Drew Brees because he is kind of his generation's Drew Brees he's easily a Hall of Famer he's won a Super Bowl and now he and the Seahawks have won more games in a six-year stretch than any team in NFL history that has never made it to a conference championship game and that's kind of the weird legacy of the Seahawks is that they've been that same team but they've got talent so I'll give them props there and you know we didn't talk about them at all here which is kind of strange but maybe people give credit for a Rams division title to Matthew Stafford so maybe he doesn't win it but he finishes near the top five because people will say well what's the difference between last year's Rams and this year's Rams well it's Matthew Stafford and now the Rams win the division so Matthew Stafford should be an MVP and he gets his props that are due I don't know if the Rams are going to be that good but Matthew Stafford is a trendy preseason pick because there's so much optimism going on in Los Angeles right now I did see a lot of love for Matthew Stafford very early on in the process as well I guess the thing for both Stafford Brady and uh, even Mahomes to a certain extent is they don't have the rushing upside that a lot of these uh, other picks behind them do have like uh, you mentioned uh, Lamar Jackson there's Josh Allen there the fact that they have such a high floor being able to be that dual threat quarterback does help them in these MVP conversations it was actually impressive that Rodgers was able to do that but just simply because of how proficient his uh, QBR the fact that he doesn't turn the ball over you, you also got to look at Rodgers if he just maintains that no turn the ball over 40 touchdowns all these guys also have another game to potentially stat pad a little bit we could potentially see some records fall this year just because again extra game more opportunity is the MVP gonna... race just going to become a race to 50 touchdowns? It's just whichever quarterback gets to 50 touchdowns fastest. And if that's the case. Josh Allen deserves some kind of love here if this is just going to become a race to 50 touchdowns. But with the extra game, I think Rodgers had like 48 last year. Lamar was close with all-purpose touchdowns. I think he had like 46 all-purpose touchdowns during his MVP season. Mahomes had 50. Rodgers had 48. So maybe this just becomes who gets to 50 touchdowns, gets to win MVP. Yeah, Mahomes, the last two years, it's just been a little minor tweak or injury that's kept him away from taking back the MVP trophy. 
it makes sense that Vegas has been the favorite. I'm just thinking what's going to be that story. And there's some speculation. I know there's been the speculation every year if this is Brady's last year. And I could see the voters wanting to give him one last MVP trophy before he's down. And if he happens to put up those numbers that we're expecting the Bucks offense to put up, that 50 touchdowns, reduce the interceptions, traditional Tom Brady type season. I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be considered uh, in that discussion. But okay, well, that does it for the end. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.